biblical allegories tonight. So I hope you can be here for each of them. If you missed one, or if you have to stay home for tickets, they will be online. I'm sure you can keep up with them now. Thank you, Pastor. Uh, yes. Biblical allegories. Exploring the depth of God's word. It is right here it is. That uh, is an allegory in itself. That graphic. You see the Bible there. Uh, the roots below the Bible. And uh, the color green. Green speaks of life. You know, if you get to Revelation, you see that around God's throne, there is a sea of green. Green speaks of life. Brown speaks of life being denuded. And of course, of course black speaks of death. Um, what we're going to do as we get into the Bible is explore the uh, and demonstrate the depth, the consistency, and the power of God's Word that teaches us everything we need to know, everything, the only book that does, about our origin, our purpose, our morality, that is the difference between right and wrong, and our destiny, where we're going. And a lot of that story is contained in powerful word pictures throughout Scripture. Tonight we're going to look at the first three, leprosy, blindness, and the Lamb of God. The great prophet Jeremiah declared, Thy words were found, and I did keep them, and thy word is unto me the joy and the joy of my heart. It, when we eat food, it becomes a part of us. It provides daily health and strength as we absorb it into our bodies. So it is with the word of God. We are made spiritually healthy and strong as we feast on this living book. The Bible is as life-giving and as uncomplicated as bread. It's written for us not to debate, but to digest. It is food for the soul, not for picky gourmet, but for the spiritually hungry. The Bible is a storybook. An amazing storybook that unfolds a simple message from beginning to end. We are sinners and God has provided a Savior. I know people who oppose scripture will tell you, oh, there are lots of translations. How do you know which is the correct one? Yes, there are many, many translations of the Bible. And every single translation tells the same story from Genesis to Revelation. Man is a sinner. God has provided a Savior. What an incredible story. The only book that tells that. To aid our understanding and make the teachings possible, accessible even to children, much of the story is told in the form of parables and allegories, word pictures, whose message is easily grasped. Historical events in the Old Testament turn out to illustrate deep spiritual truths when we view them from our vantage point as New Testament Christians and read the New Testament Again and again, we come across references to those allegorical events in the Old Testament. Now, an allegory broadly illustrates a principle. To understand that, many details of an allegory are merely parts of the story. They're not themselves principles to be adopted. So, for instance, in the story of the blind beggar that Jesus heals in John chapter 9, uh, we shouldn't assume that from the story that the key to receiving your sight is to sit on a street corner holding a begging bowl. Those are just details that flesh out the story. Uh, the key lesson in the story is the effect of a blind beggar's encounter with Jesus. 
The Apostle Paul explains allegory in detail when he unpacks references to the first two sons of Abraham. The first son, of course, was Ishmael and then Isaac, and likens them to the old covenant and the new covenant, the bondwoman or the slave woman, Hagar, who was a slave of Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and the free woman, Sarah, his wife, and he likens them to Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, to flesh and spirit, to earthly Jerusalem and heavenly New Jerusalem. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 4 and just look at how complex it is. Uh, and yet Paul brings it alive by explaining to us what it all means. In chapter 4, verse 21, <coughs> Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not fear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondmaid or a slave woman, and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. So from the slave woman, you remember the story, Abraham and uh, Sarah, she, God promised them a, a miraculous child, the child didn't arrive, so they decided to help God by uh, taking in the slave woman, the culture in those days, a slave woman, uh, if she bore a child by the patriarch, that child was as good as their child. And so that's what they did to help God out. Of course, they didn't need help, and it caused them a lot of problems. Um, uh, but he was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. So here is the first son, Ishmael, is a type of our flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise, the promise of God's word, which things are an allegory. Pretty clear. He says it right there. A story with a hidden meaning. For these are the two covenants, New Testament and Old Testament. The one from the Mount Sinai, which is where the law was given, um, which generates to bondage, it leads to bondage, the law leads to bondage, which is Hagar. Now, you see the spelling there is A-G-A-R, that's because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament is Greek, and when they translate it into English, the spelling turns out differently in some cases, but it's Hagar. For this Hagar, the slave woman, is Mount Sinai, the place where the law was given, in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, and he is now referring to the Jerusalem of that day, where Old Testament Jews lived, uh, which now is and is in bondage with her children. They, the people of the Old Testament, the Jews, were in bondage under the law. But Jerusalem, which is above, heavenly Jerusalem, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Uh, this is not a comparison here between Sarah and Hagar, this is to let us know that uh, it's, there's a woman of promise, in fact it does refer to Sarah, because she was a woman of promise, who brought forth a child of promise, she became the mother of a multitude, we are part of that multitude. Every uh, person who's ever been saved is a descendant of her son, Isaac, and we are part of that multitude of her family. And she bore way more children than any wife of any man. 
Now be brethren, as Isaac was of the children of promise, verse 28, but as he then that was born out of the flesh persecuted him that was born out of the spirit, even so it is now. That's exactly what happened. Ishmael was jealous of Isaac. He thought, Ishmael thought he was going to inherit. By the way, he's the father of the Muslims. They trace their ancestry back to him. Uh, and um, he was jealous of Isaac and persecuted Isaac, just as the flesh persecutes the spirit. Uh, you find that out every day of your life. Your flesh wars against your spirit. That's what he's referring to here. Nevertheless, what says the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman, the slave woman, and her son. Cast out the Old Testament. Cast out the old way, fleshly way of doing things. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, the slave woman, but of the free. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. What a fantastic passage. Describes everything you need to know about biblical allegory. Romans 15.4 and 1 Corinthians 10 extend this. Let's turn to Corinthians and quickly look there. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 6. Moreover, brethren, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all, all passed through the sea. He's referring here to the escape from Egypt when uh, the pillar of cloud led them by day and a pillar of fire by night. They got to the Red Sea. The Red Sea parted. They walked through. Uh, Paul in his letter to Corinthians says they were... Uh, in verse 2, all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Again, this is all allegorical. What happened there, an actual historical, physical event, teaches us spiritual truths. And did all eat the same spiritual meat? What was their spiritual meat? Manna from heaven, spiritual food. And did all drink the same spiritual drink? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. You remember they, they thirsted in the wilderness, uh, God told Moses, strike a rock, and water came forth, and they were uh, sustained by that water. He says that rock was Christ, and the water that flowed from them was the Holy Spirit. Fantastic. Now, the rock didn't literally roll after them through the wilderness. It didn't follow them that way. Uh, but God's presence was with them the whole time, giving them living waters. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So we read things in the Old Testament, they read these stories we read, and we say, well, what was that all about? Stop, if you ever think that. It is about something, and you'll be blessed if you find out what it is about. Verse 7, Neither be ye idolaters, etc. Let's jump down to verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for examples. Now if you look back, uh, the first time he talks about examples, which is what they were. Here we see a word, examples. That's simply the old English word for a type. They were types. They were illustrations. They were examples. And they are written for our admonition or for our teaching upon whom the ends of the world have come. And that's it, how these things work. They declare that stories about Old Testament events are examples and types written for our instruction. With this in mind, we're going to this evening explore three allegories about leprosy, blindness, and the lamb. Let's begin with leprosy. Leprosy. 
of an inward sickness. Leprosy was a disease regarded by the ancient Hebrews as a direct punishment from God for his great transgressions. Leprosy is an awful disease that eats inward to the bone and outward to the flesh, rotting the whole body a little bit at a time. Grotesque disease, like spiritual corruption, it begins with a small spot and spreads gradually, disfiguring the whole body, just like sin defiles your spirit, defiles your soul, if you let it grow. Lepers were segregated from society and were not allowed to enter the temple, just as sinners are separated from the presence of God. In Leviticus chapter 13, we read that, And the leper in whom the plague is enclosed shall be left his head bare, he shall put a covering on his upper lip, lip and su shall cry, Unclean, unclean. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be a leper in those days? Shunned from society, and anytime someone comes near you, you've got to yell out, Unclean, unclean, and I'll turn away and walk the other way. Horrible disease. All the days wherein the plague shall be in him shall he be defiled. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone. Without the camp shall be his habitation. But there was a cure. Leprosy could be cured. There were extensive regulations in the law for the identification, treatment, and cure of the sickness. You can read that in Leviticus 13 and 14. And the cure was fantastic. Find a lamb, kill it, take its blood, and make atonement for the sick person. When a priest confirmed the cure, a bird was killed, and its blood was mixed with water. Now, why do you think that was? you remember when Jesus hung on the cross? To prove that he was dead, they stabbed him in the side with a spear and out flowed blood and water. Proof of his death. That blood and water flowing from the side of our Savior proved that the price had been paid for our sin. So the bird dies and they mix its blood with water, but then look what happened. Then a second bird is immersed in the blood and water before being released to fly away flying up into the sky like your redeemed soul, reaching for the heavens. What a fantastic picture. Just amazing. And there it is. And you might have read that and thought, what's that about? It's in Leviticus. I, I'm going to skip to something more interesting. And it doesn't get more interesting than this. There's illustrations throughout Scripture, dramatic illustrations of the analogy between sin and leprosy provided in Numbers 12, when Miriam opposes Moses and instantly struck with leprosy. That just shows what God thinks about sin and rebellion. And of course, Moses had to pray for her. She had to go through the whole process of healing, go outside the camp until the leprosy was healed. Then there's a story about the humility required to receive healing uh, in, in uh, um, 2 Kings, the key passage is in uh, chapter 5, and it tells about the, uh, this uh, Syrian general, very powerful man, next in line to the king, is a leper, and he hears from a little slave girl that there's a prophet in Israel who can heal him. So he heads for Israel, accompanied by his army, camels loaded with treasures, looking for the prophet, gets to the prophet's house, he's got all the pomp and ceremony of a great man and a prophet sends his servant out to talk to him. And the
and the servant says, just come to bring me Jordan River and you'll be healed and then go home. And the general is enraged. What? Doesn't he understand who I am? There are better rivers in Syria. It's, I mean, I was expecting him, you know, to kind of at least come out and greet me. And he storms off in a rage. And his servant, thankfully, slow him down and say, listen, if he had asked you to do something difficult, maybe pay the fortune, done some heroic deed to earn your healing, you'd have done it. Instead, he's asking you to do something really simple. Go and dip in the river and you'll be healed. So he does, and he gets healed. That kind of teaches us about humility when we approach God. In the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as Jesus heals leper after leper and does something that nobody else would ever dare to do. He reaches across the divide, that separation. Lepers cannot come near anybody. You'd be a fool if you weren't a leper and you reached out to touch a leper, but that's what Jesus did. He reached out constantly to touch them, a living example of what God does to heal our sins. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 8. So our next allegory is blindness. Wasn't the one about leprosy amazing? It gets better. Blindness is mentioned 150 times in Scripture and is symbolic of our inability to perceive spiritual truth. This is what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, Walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. And the illustrations in Scripture are many. The saddest one is about Samson. A man greatly blessed by God, whose spiritual immaturity and carnality caused him to lose his eyes. I mean, they literally pulled his eyes out. And he ends up like a donkey, tied to a mill, grinding, going in circles, blind, and getting nowhere. That, my friends, is a fantastic biblical picture of you and me when we backslide and get into sin. God opens our spiritual eyes of salvation, and then, because we're dumb and rebellious, some of us backslide, and we turn into that donkey, going in circles, getting nowhere, blind, stumbling, hopeless. What a picture. By contrast, the most dramatic story of sight being restored appears in the story of the conversion of Saul. You remember his story. He's on his way to kill some more Christians. Uh, he gets knocked to the ground by a blinding flash of light. Jesus tells him his media persecution. He's led by the hand like a blind man into Damascus. Three days later, a disciple of Jesus comes to him to pray for him. And if you read the, the biblical story, it's like scales fall from his eyes and he can see. Hallelujah. What a wonderful picture of what it's like to be saved. And by the way, when he sees, he's a new man. Well, the last allegory for this message, and the best, is the story of the lamb. And 
and what it showed him to be. Taking the life of a lamb as a remedy for sin is scripture's most powerful pictorial allegory. The peaceful, playful, sweet innocence of lambs, their vulnerability, and their pure white wool sweeps in such a graphic picture of the character of a perfect savior who paid a debt he didn't owe to those who faced a price they could never pay. And there are many illustrations, both graphic and prophetic in scripture. Abraham sacrificing Isaac. That's pretty dramatic. There he is about to kill his own son, drive a knife into his heart as he lies on the altar, and God stops him, and Abraham looks up, and there is a ram whose horns are caught in a bush, and he takes the substitute sacrifice and kills that in the place of his son. You'd have to be an idiot not to see the picture there. Uh, Israel sacrificing lambs in Egypt to escape the death angel, the first Passover. The death angel is coming, and the only way to escape him is go out into your flock, look for a lamb with no blemish, inspect that lamb for three days, take it to a house, kill the lamb, put the blood on the door of your house, go into the house and shut the door, and when the death angel comes and sees the blood, he will pass over you. That's you and me when we get saved. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see what you're doing. He sees the blood. And this deliverance became a permanent memorial celebrated each year at the Feast of Passover through worship in the tabernacle and the temple. The great prophet Isaiah spoke of the fulfillment of this. Turn to Isaiah 53, a beautiful, beautiful passage in Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 7. It says this, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. That means when Jesus hung dying on the cross, there were people there who thought, boy, he must have done something really bad to be going through all this suffering. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before his shearers is dumb, he opened his mouth, his mouth. By the way, we are the sheep. And he became one of us, a sheep, to die for other sheep. He became the Lamb of God. 1,500 years after the Exodus, 600 years after Isaiah, the true lamb and its purpose was identified. That amazing scene where John the Baptist is at the Jordan River preaching the kingdom of God, baptizing people, and he stops and he points, and there's a man walking past. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. Boy, I wish I'd read it that day. What an amazing thing. These these people are wanting to serve God. They've been looking for their Messiah for generations, for 1,500 years. They've been sacrificing the Lamb at every Passover, and suddenly he's identified. There is a, and it's a man who looks just like them. And finally, we see the Lamb 
the, the story there is extraordinary. Luke 22, verses 1 to 7, at the exact time that they've been doing this for many, many, many years. I'm getting so excited I can't find Luke 22 there. I knew it was there somewhere. Uh, verses 1 to 7. Got it. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Look at how the Bible picks out the story. They were preparing for the Passover while people were going out into their flocks looking for lambs without blemish to kill. The chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him. Then entered Satan into Judas Iscariot, who, uh, being of the number of the twelve, and he went his way, communed with the chief priests and captains, how he might betray them unto him. I've got a really good lamb for you to kill. And they were glad, and covenanted to give him money, and he promised and sought the opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Look at this next verse. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And the divine Passover is going to be killed. 1,500 years of history is now coming to a culmination. What an incredible event. And we are the beneficiaries of that. And we get to read this book and see the connection and wonder at the God who did all of this and provided this book for us and the Holy Spirit to make it come alive to us. And then, as if that's not enough, we see the Lamb triumphant in the Revelation. You know, in the book of Revelation, there are 22 references to the Lamb of God. And let's go to Revelation chapter 5. How much time have I got? I'm going to talk real fast. I want to get through this. Uh, Revelation chapter 5. I know it's here somewhere. Verses... 1 to 7, I think. Uh, no. Um, 1 to 14. Yes, 5. 1 to 14. I'm not going to read the whole thing, just some of the highlights. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the book, on the throne, a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. He's talking about God. And I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much. This is John weeping with a broken heart because there's no man able to open this book. Neither to look thereon, and I wept much. Verse 5, And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld him low in the midst of the throne, and at the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, Not a hero, not a mighty king, not a great general. A lamb places it at his throne. Look at verse 11. I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, millions and millions of angels, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I say, 
plenty and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Get that picture in your mind the next time you come here on a Sunday morning and start to worship. Join this song. And the four beasts said amen and the four and twenty elders fell down and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever. At the end of the prophecy, by the way, Revelation 12, 11 reminds us that we are overcome by the world, the flesh, and we overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil by the blood of the Lamb. And then let's close by looking at Revelation 21, uh, verses 9 to 10. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride. The Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. 22 to 27. And I saw no temple therein in the holy city, the new Jerusalem, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor to it. Uh, go down to verse 27. They shall no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh it a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's you and me. In 22, 1 to 3. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which we're going to look at in one of the messages uh, later in the series, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree was for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it for his servants, shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his remnant shall be in, in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. These accounts from Revelation help us to appreciate the magnificence of our Savior and his extraordinary love for us that caused him this magnificent king so low to save our miserable souls. Next week we're going to explore just how low we do fall. Invisible. And then God breaks that picture that we saying if you look at the life of Jacob and his bumpy road from sheep and deceiver to God's prince. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of your word. It's depth, it's beauty, its coherence, its simplicity, its complexity, and above all, the fact that it brings life into our souls. Oh, God, may we appreciate your word and our Savior in equal measure. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for our lives. May we be worthy of your great sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.